you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. You can turn to the second epistle of John. So second John. Uh, as, we, as we start turning to these places through the summer that are a lot smaller, you can feel free to use your table of contents. Uh, it gets harder to just kind of flip there like this. No shame. Go ahead, flip to the front, find out where it is. Uh, second John comes right in between first and third John, if that helps you at all. Maybe it helps. Uh, if you have a phone or whatever, grab your app, do whatever you need to do. Turn there. I'm very excited about the text today. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to read our text for us. Second John verses 1 to 3. Read that and then we'll pray and then we'll jump into it. As you know, if you've been around over the last few weeks, we in this summer series are looking at four, the four, one chapter New Testament letters. Really, really excited. I've been really excited to get to uh, the epistles of John in particular. So let me, let me read Second John 1 to 3. Pray and then we'll get into it. I'm trying to give you extra time to turn to Second John. That's why I'm keep going on and on. So now that you're there, let's read together. Second John verse 1. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, as we come before you again this morning, it's with great thankfulness, it's with joy, it's in weakness and again dependency, Lord, that we open your word. Lord, we absolutely need you to speak to us this morning by your spirit. So we pray that, God, you would remove distractions from this place, uh, that you wouldn't allow the things we bring in here with us, each of us, to, to distract us from what you want to say to us. God, I pray that I wouldn't be a distraction, that, that the sin in my life and the places where I fall short wouldn't distract from what you want to do this morning. God, we just want to let you just reign in this place. Jesus, we know that you are king, king not only of our city, but of the entire universe. And this morning, we want to sit at your feet and hear from you. So, Lord, would you help us? Help us now, I pray in your name. Amen. Now, as I said, ever since we've decided to do this series this summer, looking at the one chapter letters in the New Testament, I've been really excited to get to the epistles of John. They're tiny. Well, second and third John are tiny. They're actually the shortest letters in the entire New Testament. Uh, they're kind of like those energy drinks you can buy. They're really small ones at the gas station. They're really tiny, but there's a lot in them. They're very, very powerful. See, in these letters, John was writing with great force into some really serious issues of his own day, both culturally and inside the church. And here's the amazing thing about the Bible, God's word. Today, thousands of years later, it's equally forceful in our culture as well. Now, for those here uh, who didn't grow up going to Sunday school, if you didn't grow up in the church, uh, you may need a little bit of background on who, uh, who the apostle John is and a little context around this letter. I know that those of us who have been Christians a long time, we don't need it, but hang in there anyway. Maybe you've forgotten. So the author of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, no surprise, is also the author of the Gospel of John. All four books were written right around the same time, close to the end of the 1st century A.D. John was one of Jesus' 12 disciples and, and referred to himself um, often, well, a few times, as the one that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved. John apparently had a really unique bond with Jesus, apparently, at least in his own mind. At least in his own mind. 
One of the things that I love about John in particular is, is, the way that, is the way that he thought and the way that he spoke so clearly into the philosophical constructs of his own day. I mean, the first chapter of his gospel, very famous, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. One of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible for the way John is appealing to his own culture through their own philosophical constructs. Very powerful so Jesus descends, right? He dies, he rises from the dead, he ascends, he goes back to heaven, and he commissions John as an apostle, which meant that John had been given a really unique position to play in laying the foundation for God's church. Second John, as well as third John and first John, were most likely written by the apostle when he was living in a very influential city called Ephesus. Now Ephesus at this time was the intellectual center of Asia Minor. John was old. He was the last surviving apostle. The last guy at this point in history who'd actually personally walked with Jesus. He was greatly respected and he had great authority in the church. So when John the apostle pens these letters, these letters are important. People are listening to John. Now, now John's epistles were written for a purpose, as most letters are. John's epistles were written primarily to address a false ideology that was taking shape within culture and within the church. See, John has picked up on what will become the next major battle in the life of the early church. If you've been around the last few years, we've been walking through Romans, and we've been noticing Paul as he's been, as he's been fighting his own battle. Right? He's, been on, he's been fighting the battle of Christians reverting to the law instead of remaining abetted in and abiding in grace. This this is now the next major battle that the church would face. The heresy that John is writing against would become later known as Gnosticism. John's epistles strike right to the heart of this new way of thinking. First John, the letter right before ours, is his longest, his longest defense against this relatively new ideology. The second letter and the much shorter letter in front of us today, short enough to fit on one piece of papyrus. One, you know, it wasn't like the way it is today where you could just sit down at your computer, jot out an email to somebody and boom, send it. There was a lot of work that went into sending these letters. So the, the shortness of the letter is, is directly related to the, the, the size of the piece of papyrus that they were writing on. Second John is really a summary of 1st John and written to a specific local church instead of the church in general. Now have a look at verse 1 of 2nd John. John writes there, the elder to the elect lady and her children. There's a lot of debate on that line. There's debate on whether this letter is actually being addressed to an actual woman and her actual offspring or whether John is using this, using this term to refer to the, the, this particular local church and those who are part of it. Now let me just tell you, uh, there are decent arguments on both sides of this debate. There really are. Uh, but I'll tell you where I land, and you can take it or leave it for what it's worth. Uh, it's really not going to affect the meaning of this text much. But it seems to me that Second John being written to a local church makes far more sense of the text. Let me give you four reasons why I think that really quickly. Four reasons. First, the majority of this letter is written in the second person plural, which would have been unnecessary if John had had one lady in mind. Second, the Greek word used for lady, the word kyria, can actually be used to designate a subunit in a group of people. So it can actually be used to talk about more than one. The, 
Also, verse 13 makes better sense to me if one church is greeting another, which was often the case, instead of one group of cousins uh, greeting another group of cousins. And finally, the church is regularly referred to with feminine names, like the Bride of Christ. Right, so elect lady uh, isn't that big of a stretch. Now, you can go either way on that one. Doesn't really influence the meaning, but I want you to be aware uh, as we get into that. So that's a bit of background on who and why. A little bit of background, really quick, a big flyover, really fast. But let's ask the question now, what was Gnosticism? What was John actually fighting against? Why was this a big deal? Now, hang with me here, uh, because this is really important for us. See, in the danger of, to put it really briefly and and dangerously oversimplified, ancient Gnosticism was the pursuit of higher knowledge. As you'll know if you've taken philosophy classes, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which meant knowledge. And this new way of thinking was influenced by philosophers like Plato, for example. We can roughly boil the main idea of this new ideology down to, the, down to the premise that matter is bad while spirit is good. It's the idea that to be physical, like we are, you and me, physical with physical bodies, is to be inherently sinful. Therefore, physical beings will only find life or salvation once they're able to live beyond their physicality and instead from the spirit. That's the idea. Now this led to several errors. I'll give you three of them. Two practical errors and one theological error. This work that we're doing at the front end is really important for us going forward, so hang with me. The first practical error that Gnosticism brought was that people who believed that physical matter was inherently sinful could often and would often make the mistake of believing that their physical body needed to be constantly and continually punished. Right, so these would be the, the people who live lives of asceticism, right? Self-inflicted pain, suffering of all kinds. These are their tools to remove themselves from their bodies and live instead from the spirit. Totally anti-biblical way of living life. Hope I don't need to tell you that. I hope no one's going home and whipping themselves after the service today. That's not in the Bible. Second, an equal and opposite mistake. Believing in the inherent corruption of everything physical led others on the far other end of the spectrum to conclude that the physical, that the physical self, the physical shell doesn't matter at all because it's all evil anyways. So these would become known as hedonists. They would just pursue all the pleasure in the world they could possibly get their hands on with no boundaries because they believed that ultimately it didn't matter at all anyway. The physical was completely corrupt. You couldn't corrupt it any more than that. Again, no biblical support for that position either. But this new philosophy also led to some really serious theological error as some within the church began to deny that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. See, when Gnosticism was creeping into the life of the early church, Christians would want to defend Jesus' sinlessness because we know that's really important that Jesus didn't sin. So they'd want to defend that. And so one of the ways they would do that is by removing his physicality from him. So Jesus is no longer fully human as the Bible affirms, which led to a whole bunch of problems, the most serious of which was a denial of the nature, power, and sufficiency of the atonement. Big deal. Now we're squarely in the realm of heresy. See, essentially Gnostics believed that they had a higher knowledge, which was available only to those who'd been been, uh, enlightened or initiated into this way of thinking, 
And this knowledge was higher even than Scripture itself. So the Apostle John then, like a good elder, comes along and wants to protect the church. He wants to guard the church. He wants to hold up the word of God and protect all of those inside Jesus' church. Which is why, which is why John in his epistles over and over again constantly emphasizes the importance of truth. Truth. Really easy to see in our text today. In these first three verses, the word truth is mentioned four times. See, the idea of truth was under attack in John's day. They had a higher truth. And this is really, really interesting for you and me living in Vancouver in 2014, August long weekend. Why? Because the very same thing is under attack in our day as well. See, John's culture was pursuing a higher truth, whereas our culture is pursuing the complete abolition of truth altogether. And sadly today, Today, just like a few thousand years ago, the church, the church of Jesus is under immense pressure to be swept away by the wisdom of the world instead of being anchored by the word of God. Now maybe, maybe it sounds odd in this room uh, for those of us without a degree in philosophy to say that our culture is pursuing the abolition of truth. We're trying to get rid of truth. I mean, all of us know that some things are true. We know that grass is green. We know that the sky is blue, that ice is cold, that fire is hot. We know the Canucks won't make the playoffs. <laughs> Despite Jim Benning and all the new moves, it's been great. Playoffs are not in our future. We know these things. <laughs> these are things we know. And yet, and yet at a fundamental level, truth is an offensive word to us. Why? The reason truth is so offensive to us is because anytime someone says, I know something, they're claiming that if you know something different about the something that they just claim to know something about, then the something that you know is wrong. And maybe it sounds a little bit stupid when we put it like that, but it shouldn't because this is everywhere. This is all around us. For example, I, I come in contact on a regular basis with people who, who love what I believe. They think, they, they'll say to me things like, Matt, I, I love that you're so passionate about what you believe. It's so great that you believe. I, in fact, I've got a best, one of my best friends. He's, he's uh, not a believer. He's very against uh, this whole thing. He's been a friend of mine for a lot of years. And he'll often say to me, I love that you're so passionate about what you believe, Matt. But he'll also say, but I don't know why you can't just like me the way I am. See, here's the problem. He has a visceral reaction to the idea that what I believe is true, I believe is also true for him. See, you can believe whatever you want in our culture as long as you don't use your truth claims, your belief system to impose on someone else's belief system. To do that would be intolerant, offensive, and everything that's wrong with our world today. This is why the vast majority of the people in our city have a really strong distaste for things like organized religion. Which, by the way, is what we're doing this morning. We are organized, right? Westside has a leadership structure. We are organized and we are following a religion. Organized religion. People have a very strong distaste taste for that. Why? Well, not only is it perceived as a power play, but it's also perceived as the most arrogant form of self-exaltation for anybody like me to get up and say, I know something. 
Because at the very time that I say I know something, I'm saying that those who don't know what I know don't know the truth like I do. It's why the famous French philosopher Michel Foucault said, any story but one's own is oppressive. Knowing is an act of violence. See, he's saying that anytime you say, I know, you're actually abusing someone who knows something else. Why can't we all just get along? Well, the answer to many in our city is because of religious fanatics who refuse the goals that the rest of us are after. Now I wonder, have you thought much about what the people of our city are after? What are the goals that our city is pursuing? Have you thought much about that? Because I think it's really important for those inside of the church to realize what it is that the, that the people of our city are actually trying to build in society. What do we want? Why do we as a city put so much energy, time, money into things like a gay pride parade? happening today. Why do we do that? It's not because the city hates Christians. It's not. That's not the driving force. Not because, and you, you might actually think that by the way that some Christians respond uh, to, to these parades, but it's not because they hate Christians. So why? Listen, the reason that we want to eliminate the idea that one truth can apply to every person is because we believe that that is antithetical to our ultimate goals of love, unity, and the tolerant utopia that we want to create. Love, unity, and some form of salvation. Now those are good goals. As Christians, we can affirm those goals. We actually want the same things. A lot of the people crowding our streets today to celebrate gay pride, they're there because they believe that if we can put away our differences in the name of love, unity, and salvation, we will ultimately find the salvation that we're after. That's why they're there. They want to accept. They want to love. They want to be unified. And in that, they believe we will find what we're looking for. Now, this is incredible. This is amazing because these three things, love, unity, and salvation, happen to be the exact same three things that the Apostle John is saying that we will only find when we move in the exact opposite direction of our culture. And instead of pursuing the abolition of truth, stand on one overarching truth. He's saying we will get these things when we move in the exact opposite direction. So here's what I want to do with our time this morning, the rest of the time that we have left. First, I want us to get clear on what John meant by truth. What was he talking about? That's important. After that, I want us to quickly walk through this text, and I want us to do this. I want us to try to decide whether believing in the narrow confines of the truth that John is, is pointing us to, or whether believing in the, the complete abolition of truth, the elimination of truth that our culture preaches, I want to decide which of these will actually do a better job in helping us achieve love, unity, and salvation. Okay, that's what I want to do this morning. So please have a look with me. I'm always encouraged, as I tell you often when you see you looking down with me. So just look at your knees. Second John, verse 1. 
Second John verse one, the apostle there writes this. He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth and not only I, but also all who know the truth. First question, what truth? What does John mean by truth here? Now, as I told you in the beginning, uh, first, or Second John is really a summary of First John. And in First John, he explicitly tells us what he means by truth. For example, in First John 2, verse 21, the apostle writes this. He says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar, but he who denies the truth that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, first part of the truth, Jesus Christ is the truth. Then in 1 John 5, verse 6, we read this. John writes, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Okay, so the Holy Spirit of God is also the truth. Additionally, 1 John 5, 20, we read this. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him, the Father, who is true. And we are in him, the Father, who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Okay, so what is truth? What's the truth? Well, John has just explicitly told us in 1 John that the truth is the triune God as revealed to us in the Bible. Through the pages of scripture, Father, Son, and Spirit. The truth is Father, Son, and Spirit at work together in the redemption of humanity through Jesus. Said another way, more simply, the truth that John is referring to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when he says the truth, that's what he's talking about. So in verse 1 of our text, John is saying to the church, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I love you. I love you. And this is important for us because our culture is infatuated with the idea of love. I told you last week, I told you because it came up in, in Philemon, I told you last week about a, a shirt that, that Melissa pointed out to me as we were walking downtown, which oozed in its profundities as it declared that love is love. I'm, I'm grateful, I'm thankful as a human being for the clarity that t-shirt production people can bring into our lives. Especially like save water, drink beer. That one was very powerful for me <laughs> growing up. No, but love is a big deal. Love's a big deal as we've seen. And the reason why so many of us have such a deep distaste toward anyone claiming exclusive truth is because we want love. We want love Instead, not truth claims. And telling people that they're wrong doesn't seem loving. So in our pursuit of love, we strive for what? Tolerance. Tolerance. And in our striving for tolerance, we become intensely intolerant toward anyone who doesn't share our love of tolerance. And somehow we, when we fail to see the irony in this, but listen, I'm not trying to bash that way of thinking because the people who are holding to these ways of thinking, wrong as they may be, are pursuing the right things. But then here comes this old apostle named John. Old man. 
claiming that the exclusive truth claims of the gospel are actually the foundation for love, while popular culture claims that only absolute inclusivity with no absolute truth will lead to love. So who's right? Because they're saying opposite things. Well, I think both are right, in a sense. See, first of all, we have to acknowledge, you and I have to acknowledge that a lot of the people fighting to eliminate truth in our society are doing that for the sake of love and sadly, they're doing it because they've come in contact with truth that was devoid of love. See, they felt the sting of truth devoid of love and they have decided, I don't want anything to do with that. Our culture makes a very strong point when it declares that exclusive truth for the sake of exclusive truth isn't loving. They're right. That's not loving. Truth without love is evil. Truth without love is at best cold and cruel and at worst abusive, tyrannical, and dictatorial. We don't want it. And that being said, however... That being said, what our city is forgetting is that love without truth is also completely useless. See, love without truth is mere sentimentality. It's unstable, it's baseless, and has no ability to stand the test of time. It's not going to get us where we want to go either because it's meaningless. Here's the point. We need both. We need love and we need truth. Culture makes the mistake of trying to have one without the other, but the gospel holds both of them together beautifully. In the first verse of our text, we see that the truth of the gospel binds believers together in a love that's built on a lasting foundation, an eternal love, as we see in verse 2. But that, of course, begs the question for us, okay? That sounds good so far, but what about those, Matt, who don't believe the gospel? I get that we, we're, we're on a foundation of love with those who believe the truth as we do, but what about those who don't believe what we do? Is there no love for them? In fact, what do we do with people who might hate us for what we believe? Now have a look at Jesus' words on this exact point in Luke 6. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, you could read in there, who, those who know the truth, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But Jesus says, love your enemies. See, the gospel gives us a foundation not only for loving those who believe the truth found in Jesus, but also for loving those who don't. God is love and the gospel makes it possible for us to love all people regardless of what they believe. Our culture's brand of love, on the other hand, only permits them to go halfway. They're only getting partway there. They're the ones who can't love those who don't believe like them. If you can't lay down your truth claims, then you have no place in the family. Ultimately, there's no tolerance for you. You don't fit. So it seems that the narrow truth claims of Jesus actually result in more love than the tolerant intolerance of our own culture. 
Now John actually pushes this point even further and right into our second point, the second thing that our culture values when he writes to the church in our second verse that not only do I love you, but he says so does everyone who believes the truth. What John's pointing us here to is unity. Unity. Specifically the unity of believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now unity, like love, is something we all want. It's something our city wants. We have a deep sense as people that we are all connected somehow. That every single life is intrinsically valuable. That every life matters. So unity happens to be high on our list of values. And we believe culturally, generally speaking, that we will only finally be unified that only when we're finally unified will we be able to move past the anger and the aggression that has defined humanity for forever, for thousands of years. Unity, that's what we need. So how do we get there? Well, mainstream thought again is that we'll finally be unified when we can put away our differences, remove any paradigm that challenges the belief systems of someone else, that challenges what anyone else feels or does or thinks or, or, or declares that those things are wrong, remove any of those paradigms, and we will be unified. And for that reason, public enemy number one in our pursuit of unity is again the claims of anyone who says that they believe and know the truth. Specifically those claims that make judgment calls on the lives and behaviors of other people. That's the enemy of unity in our culture's mind. Now, unfortunately for Christians, and if you're here and you're in Jesus, you believe the gospel, you can't beat the system here. We can't beat the system here. Because Christians believe that some things are fundamentally wrong. No matter how you feel about them, no matter what you think about it, some things are wrong. Listen, not because they offend our morality. We need to get over ourselves. It's not because people are offending our morality. It's because people are offending a holy God. That's why some things are fundamentally wrong. Listen, we as Christians, we cannot celebrate gay pride with our city. We can't. We can't celebrate that, but we can and should and must love those who do. But we can't join them because we believe that that lifestyle is the perversion of the good gifts that God has given us for our joy and for our pleasure and for life. That's what we believe. And we want people to find life so we can't celebrate that which is distracting them from it. How could we do that? That would be unloving. Which is why what John is saying here is so important because he's claiming that believing the exclusive truth claims of the gospel is actually the only foundation for any unity at all. Again, our city pursues unity by attempting to remove truth claims, but here's the problem with that. Here's the problem. Unity without truth isn't unity. Why not? Because when we have to let go of what defines us as individuals for the sake of unity, we're being unified at the expense of who we are rather than in light of who we are. 
Listen, if you have to put away what you believe in order to find unity, are you really being unified or are you just joining yourself together with people at the lowest common denominators that we can all agree on? But before we get too excited, before we get too excited, the gospel, the gospel doesn't solve the unity equation either. See, John is saying, listen to John in that second verse. John is saying that the only people who can be truly unified are the people who believe the truth. Which means that the gospel has no mechanism for bringing unity to the entire world either. In fact, as we're going to see next week, there are actually times when Christians are commanded to withdraw their unity from people. So what do we do? Because it seems there's no good way to find the unity that we're all looking for. If we remove truth, we deny who we are as people. And if we stand on it, we divide ourselves from those who don't believe what we believe. See, for this reason, and, and, and contrary to popular culture's picture of Jesus, the, the meek and mild picture of Jesus, he actually said in Matthew 10, verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. See, Jesus knew something. He knew that bringing the truth into the world would do two things. Bringing the truth into the world would, first of all, it would unify perfectly. And bring perfect unity to those who believe it. But he also knew that it would forever divide them from those who don't. What are we saying? Well, we're saying that until the day comes when every single man, woman, and child bends their knees to King Jesus, that day is coming. But until that day, there will be no universal unity. It will not happen. It will not exist. Remember, there's love, but there's division too. And our culture will forever look at those who refuse to compromise the truth of God's word as those who are holding them back from the unity that they want. See, Jesus told us that the world would have some serious issues with us. He said Christians would be hated. He wasn't joking. So the question for us then, the question for us then becomes, okay, well, what's, what's more valuable, unity or truth? I mean, which one should we pursue? Because the reality is this. Many in our church today, many in the church of King Jesus today have decided to throw out truth for the sake of unity. This is rampant. It's everywhere. Many have decided to compromise on what God's word says because they believe that relationships with those around them who don't believe the truth are more important. Now, I hope I don't need to tell you, Westside, that there's a serious problem with that. There's a serious problem with that approach, and we see exactly what that problem is in the third verse of our text. Please have a look at it. In 2 John verse 3, he writes this, Grace, I love that word, 
grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, in truth and love. I love the progression in those words. Grace, mercy, and peace. See, grace is God's unconditional love held out for all of humanity. Mercy is the gift of God given, those, given to those who have seen their sin and those who look to Jesus as their Savior in peace. Peace with God is the ultimate result of the gospel. John is saying that salvation, the salvation we're after comes only by the way of truth. Only truth can lead us to life. Now, it may sound funny for us to say that our culture is pursuing salvation. I know that sounds weird. We don't talk that way. But listen, our culture clearly is. We're pursuing a society marked by love and lacking any division. Why? Because we believe that if we can just set all of our differences aside and support each other in whatever we happen to feel or want, then we will finally live in the world that we're dreaming of. Then and only then will we fix the brokenness around us. Wars, hate, violence, intolerance, these will be, merely be things of the past. This is the salvation that we're running after. But Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to salvation. No one gets the peace at the end of that progression except through me. He says, only when you know the truth that is found in me will you ever be free. And listen, I know it's, temp I know it's very tempting in our society, in our culture, to value unity over truth. We don't want to offend people. We're not necessary. We want our only offense to be the gospel. So we don't really want to stand behind, you know, the, the morality claims that we have in the word of God. But we can't do that. We don't get to pick which parts of God's word we hold up and stand on. Why not? Because when we value unity over truth, we are valuing unanimity with people over their salvation. Listen, that is an ultimately selfish act. That's a very selfish act. We are saying, I would rather get along with you, have a good, fruitful relationship with you, instead of leading you to the source of life that I have found. That's pure selfishness. Only the truth of the gospel can lead the people we love to salvation while unity leads them nowhere at all. Unity dead ends until Jesus comes back and we're perfectly unified under him as king. Listen, Jesus, as Acts says, is the only name under heaven by which, by which any person can be saved. And we need to follow John's cue here, you and I. Westside, 2014, August long weekend, as we head out into our city today, as we watch people celebrating that which is distracting them from life instead of that which will ultimately lead them to it, we need to follow John's cue. We need to love the people of our world enough to stand in the truth of the gospel and never compromise it. We need to stand for truth and love. 
Remember, we need both. We love them. Our hearts break for them. We want them to find what we have found. Why? Because we believe it's the truth. Despite how offensive that sounds. So this whole thing then, this whole thing this morning boils down to simply a question of love. Do you love people enough that you can stand to be hated in order that some of them might see the truth in you and find the salvation that they're looking for? And they're looking desperately, passionately, unreservedly for for salvation. Our world is passionately pursuing what can only be found in Jesus. But how will they know that unless someone stands up to tell them, to show them in love, in love? Please hear me. There's nothing uglier. There is nothing uglier than Christians standing on truth in the middle of our city without love. Nothing uglier than that. Nothing breaks my heart more than that. They want love, unity, and salvation, but only through the truth of the gospel will love have a foundation, will unity be real, and the deepest desires written on all of our hearts since the day that we open our eyes be fulfilled. Only in the truth of Jesus. We in the church, we need, we need absolutely to stop joining hands with people to demonstrate what man can build and instead spend our lives pointing to what God has already done in and through the person and the work of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for grace and mercy and peace. I thank you for your unconditional love, the gift of mercy and the peace which we can ultimately find all made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. God, I pray for those here this morning who don't yet have those things, who haven't yet found the life that they're looking for. God, would you save them today? Would you open their eyes? Would you show them the truth? Would you increase our love, God, for those who need to, need to know you? Would you increase our, our, our brokenness, our brokenheartedness for them? Lord, I, I pray for those also here who know you. I pray that as we leave this place, as we walk into the city, that we wouldn't blend in with culture. That we wouldn't seek unity over truth, but God, that we would stand out. We would stand out in such a broken place. God, I thank you that your word tells us exactly why it's so broken. I thank you that we are not left without answers. I thank you, God, for the amazing reality that your word, the Bible, tells us exactly why people do what they do in this city, in this day. God, I pray that we will be people who stand on your word, people who abide in your word, people whose eyes are changed by the truth of your word. I pray that our worldview would be your word. Lord, and I want to pray too for those in the rest of our city aren't here this morning who are celebrating that which will distract them from life instead of leave them, lead them to it. God, I pray. I pray, God, that you would draw them to yourself. Would you shower them, God, with your blessing 
And Lord, would you use us to do that? In your name, in your powerful name we pray. Amen.